This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Tonight we are resuming normal transmission after our Antarctic sojourn of the past few weeks. Later on, we're hearing about the value of old weather records. But first up, whales. I'm off to meet researcher Emma Carroll. She is studying southern right whales. We're in your office at the University of Auckland and it is full of boxes and cases because where are you going? Hoping to go to the Auckland Islands, uh, which are a group of islands about 400 kilometres south of New Zealand, where our right whales, or tohora, congregate during winter to breed and socialise. So how many whales turn up there? Uh, In 2008, we counted over 200 whales in one day, including over 50 cow-calf pairs. So it's not a big place. It's basically whale soup. (laughs) Whale soup is a wonderful way of describing it, but the fact that it's whale soup is pretty impressive because there was a point in time where there were not many of these whales left. Yeah, historically we estimate there were about 30,000 southern right whales throughout New Zealand's waters. They really were incredibly numerous. However, whaling made the population decline to around 40 animals around 100 years ago. 40 animals. How do we know that? So some work led by Jen Jackson, who's at the British Antarctic Survey, we basically reconstructed the historical abundance. So we've looked at the catch series and some current information on abundance and growth rates, and we basically backtracked to how many whales there were before whaling. So from 30,000 to 40. And now uh, in 2009, we estimate there were about 2,000. So that's quite a remarkable comeback. That is a remarkable comeback. Now, there are right whales in different places around the globe. Are these all the same species? So there's actually three different types of right whales. They all get the same name because, unfortunately, they were the right whale to catch. So they're large, producing a lot of valuable oil. They float when dead, and they're very slow swimmers. So they were the right ones to catch. So there's the North Pacific and North Atlantic right whales, different species, and they're both critically endangered. Comparatively, our southern right whale, which is found throughout the Southern Ocean, is doing pretty well, maybe ten to 15,000 southern rights from a historical abundance of 100,000. So you find them off South Australia, you find them off South America as well. And South Africa. So they congregate in large numbers in South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, Southwest Australia and the New Zealand subantarctics. So the New Zealand subantarctics in terms of our whales, that's our hotspot is down there at the Auckland Islands. Absolutely. They seem to have um, managed to cling on down there. It's been in their refuge for the last 100 years. I get the impression that these whales are quite loyal to where they're born. So luckily for us, 
obviously some females survived from that population and they have kept going back to the same place and have slowly built that population. Is that what's happened? That's what we believe. Southern right whales are incredibly loyal. So they have what we call migratory culture. So when a female has a baby, that baby will be born in her favourite wintering ground. And then it will travel with their mum to her favourite feeding grounds and often back to that wintering ground again. So in that first year of life, the calves are learning their mother's preferred migratory destinations. You know, the best places to hang out in this really vast ocean. And a lot of these animals seem to keep these traditions through the course of their life and pass that off into their offspring as well. And so the animals have stayed around the Auckland Islands, we think partly because it's been really good for them. You know, they've managed to hang on down there without being hunted. And they've passed that knowledge of it being a good area across the generations. And the sad thing is, we haven't seen them come back to the mainland in those huge densities you get in the Auckland Islands because we've probably wiped out most of the animals that knew about mainland New Zealand uh, as a good place to come and breed and hang out. So we were very lucky in Wellington a couple of years ago now. There was a young, I think they decided it was a male southern right whale that everyone nicknamed Matariki, mm-hmm. turned up in the harbour, which I think was probably a whale that got it just a bit geographically confused. So we're just waiting for whales to turn up around the mainland. Are there places around mainland New Zealand where, where they do turn up more frequently? The population of the Subantarctic has been growing between 1995 and 2009. We think it was doubling about every 10 years. So it's becoming really densely populated in that Port Ross area, which is their favourite calving and hanging out spot. So we expect to see them more and more often around mainland New Zealand, hopefully as a kind of a spillover And we do see big groups of them around Southland, so that seems to be more of a socialising area. However, you can literally see southern right whales in winter anywhere around mainland New Zealand. We've looked at the sightings records for the last couple of decades, and you can see them anywhere from Northland to Southland. As I said, Southland has had more big groups, and Northland has had more cow-calf pairs. So we have had two females each having two calves around the mainland. So hopefully that's that beginning of that new new knowledge of the mainland is a good place to come back and have babies. But it does take those animals that are exploring or a little bit weird, you know, they want to come and see what's up here. And I, I did analyse the, the, the bit of skin that the Department of Conservation collected from Masariki, and using his DNA we could tell it was a, a male, because males and females don't actually look any different in southern right whales. And based on his size, we thought he was a sub-adult. So he was, you know, a teenager looking for interesting things to check out, probably. Oh, it's good to hear that we are actually seeing females and calves around mainland. But I have to say, you, you say, it, you know, hopefully they'll come back and it'll be a good place for them to breed. There's an awful lot of boats and ships and busyness out there these days. Exactly. And one of the things I'm really hoping to facilitate through my research is understanding where around the mainland they're using, using satellite tracking, and really start the conversation. So we know that... Humpbacks are becoming more numerous and we we think that southern right whales are continuing to recover as well. We really have to start thinking about how we make space for these recovering whales around our coastline. If we look to the North Atlantic, the North Atlantic right whale is hugely impacted by ship strike and entanglements. That's our cautionary tale. Our southern rights have done really well because they're down in the subantarctics where there are no people, there are very few ships. But as they start coming back and exploring the mainland, we want to be welcoming. We want to make space for them.
We already have had experiences in New Zealand like the Brutus Whales in the Hauraki Gulf. We know what happens and we know some things that you can do, which in the case of Auckland was slow the ships down. Absolutely. And in terms of the southern rights, you know, they're likely to be here in winter. So that's a seasonal management question. There are gear mitigation strategies that the North Atlantic right whale people have developed in combination with fishes up there that could be deployed seasonally around New Zealand. And if we do that for Tohara or Southern Rights, it will have benefits for other species as well. Now, you mentioned satellite tagging in there, which brings me back to the Auckland Islands and your forthcoming trip. What are you going to be doing down there? So we're really interested in, in two aspects of the population. The first is population recovery. So we know that they have recovered up until 2009. However, since 2009, the last decade, is really the decade where climate change has become most apparent. And for southern right whales, this is actually quite important. So southern right whales are considered a sentinel species for climate change. And this is because they are what we call capital breeders. And that's just a, a biology term. All it means is females invest a huge amount of energy and time into their babies. So they only have one calf every three years, and they will nurse that calf for up to 12 months. Mums actually lose about a quarter of their weight in a couple of months, helping their calf grow. And those calves can grow maybe a metre a month. It's absolutely phenomenal. One metre a month, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And so obviously to look after a calf and help it grow like that, the mums have to be in really good condition, so they have to get a lot of kai. That's right, they have to find an awful lot of food. Oh, yeah. What are they eating? That's a good question. (laughs) And the best data we have is actually from illegal Soviet whaling. So even though southern right whales were protected internationally in the 1920s, illegal Soviet whaling took probably half the global population of southern rights in the 60s, including some from around the Auckland Islands. And so if they caught the animals below 50 degrees south, they found krill in their stomachs, And if they caught them above 40 degrees south, then they found copepods. And these are little zooplankton that are basically little balls of fat. And since right whales are basically big balls of fat, it's quite a good match there. And if if they caught the whales between 40 and 50 degrees south, then they had a mixture of both in their stomachs. Right, so climate change might be affecting this food supply, affecting the krill and the copepods. Is that the problem? Yeah, exactly. And so work has been done in South Africa that shows that they're having calves left less often now. And in Argentina, there's actually been die-offs. So the calves have been dying in quite large numbers. In Brazil and Argentina, we know that their recovery rate, because and how often they can have babies, is linked to sea conditions on these high-latitude feeding grounds, like around South Georgia and the South Atlantic. We don't have that information for New Zealand and Australian animals yet. And so part of what I'm, I'm doing is I'm leading a global collaboration where everyone who studies southern right whales is working together to get a better understanding of where our whales are going to eat and also the population recovery. So what does this involve on the ground at the Auckland Islands this year? So it's really exciting. We are going down there in a boat called the Avoi. It's a 25 metre a motor sailor, steel hull, so it's pretty sturdy, pretty comfy. We're going to wor- work on small boats, so we take three between three and five metre ribs out onto the water. We're going to be collecting small skin biopsy samples, and we can get nice DNA from that, and that tells us who the whale is and who they're related to. And we're going to be looking at kinship or whānau to estimate recovery. 
in that small bit of skin, you can also get microchemical markers that kind of tell you on a broad scale where and what the animals have been feeding on. And because broad scale is just telling you where they fed two to three months ago, it doesn't tell you how they got from that feeding ground to the Auckland Islands. We're also going to be putting satellite tags onto six whales this season, and that will give us really detailed uh, understanding of their movements. So it's how they're getting where they're going as well. We did a pilot study in 2009, and there were two animals that moved offshore from the Auckland Islands. One actually came up to Southland, and then it went to what we think is its foraging ground south of Australia. So these whales can do really surprising things. So we've got the genetics to understand recovery, and we've got isotopes and satellite tracking to understand where they're eating and on what. Um, But what we're looking at is also is, On an individual level, how do you link these things together? And that really requires an understanding of how healthy the whales are and where that whale has been feeding. So if we can take uh, the biopsies to to tell us where that particular whale has been feeding, and then we use drones to look at how fat the whale is. I've seen pictures of those whales from above, and they are quite plump. Our whales are the fattest in the world. Um, There was a recent paper by um, people from all around the world, including North Atlantic right whales, and our whales have the best condition, which is fantastic. So in this case, fat is great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, what else have you had in terms of results recently? Because I think you were involved with a tagging project of South Australia as well. So where did those whales go to? Right, so the, the paper we published, we published it as a group. So there was tags that were deployed in the Auckland Islands. There was one animal that was tagged in Tasmania, and then some animals were also tagged in the Head of Bite, which is a carving ground in South Australia. So the one animal that was tagged in Tasmania, it went just almost straight south and then hung out around the ice edge. Of the animals from the Head of Bite, some went to the same foraging ground, which our whales went to, and that's called the subtropical convergence. So explain that to me. It's an area of the ocean where the temperature changes. And so it it acts as a prey aggregation device on a really big scale. And so these these oceanic fronts, because they aggregate things like krill and copepod and fish, uh, you get these big predators like southern right whales, but blue whales and penguins and seals. You know, this is like a a moving smorgasbord. So the the animals know to go there and feed. So we kind of suspected they'd be using these oceanographic fronts. But particularly for our whales, we were quite surprised that they went south of Australia. This was surprising because up until now, the best information we had was actually from the whaling era. So I'm going to show you a map. And this is of New Zealand and Australia. And what you can see is... This is mainland New Zealand, and so they were caught historically around here from about May May to October. So when they'd come in to breed. Exactly. And then they would actually move northeast to just below the Kermadex, and then southwest, and then we think they would complete their migratory circle. That was what you thought, but... Instead of going east of New Zealand, they actually went west. And they went west uh, south of South Australia. So on that map you've got a blue... Oval that's basically just south of Western Australia and completely due west of Tasmania. Yeah. And that's where our whales went. What's well, where two of our whales went? Yeah. Two out of 2,000. <laughs> so it's, it was very surprising, but it's hard to know 
what that means for the broader population, which is why we need more information. Well, it begs the question for me is if our whales are going there and Australia's whales are going there, mm. how different genetically are those two populations' whales? There are other species I'm thinking like great white sharks where pretty much our sharks are Australians and vice versa. We think our southern right whales are a different population to particularly the Western Australian animals. So there is a small amount of genetic difference between them. And because of those migratory traditions where females come back every couple of years to breed in the same area, there's probably demographic independence as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not an absolute rule. There, we have seen animals move between the Kitabite and the Auckland Islands by photo ID. And they may find somebody they like on the feeding ground and go back with them to their breeding ground. But the balance of evidence suggests that they have different breeding grounds. So as well as the Auckland Islands, you've been involved in research in some of the other populations? Yes. So I've actually been involved in quite a big collaboration looking at South Atlantic southern right whales. So in the South Atlantic, the major breeding grounds are South Africa, Argentina and Brazil. And they've also got a feeding ground in South Georgia, which is uh, it's actually a UK territory. So I've been working with the British Antarctic Survey as well. And we've put the first tags on southern right whales on any feeding ground uh, in South Georgia uh, this year. <laughs> There's a general rule, general rule with, with tagging is that if you only get two tags out, your whales will do completely different things. One stayed south and one went, on, went off in a different direction. So we're talking southeast of the tip of South America and quite a big island, I think, South Georgia. Mm. And describe to me where that whale went. We tagged two whales on the southern coast of South Georgia um, and one animal basically hung around South Georgia the whole time. And the other one, uh, it went due south, probably quite close to the ice edge, and now it's done a big U-turn and it's in the Argentine basin. So it's probably heading for the wintering ground in Argentina or Brazil. So is that transmitting at the moment? One of them is, yeah. Oh, exciting. So do you log in every day to have a look at it? (laughs) Not every day, but quite often. South Georgia is a very difficult place to work, so it was very exciting that the team managed to get 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 some tags out this year. The tags you're going to use down in the Auckland Islands, are they going to transmit in real time or are they just the kind of tags that collect data and then pop off a few months later? They are the kind that um, connect to satellites every, every day and send you a position via satellite. So hopefully over the next few months you'll be able to keep a watch on where your whales go, assuming you get your tags out. But in the meantime, there's something else that you're pretty keen for the general public to help out on. Absolutely. The general public can actually contribute hugely to our understanding of how southern right whales use mainland New Zealand. We've got 15,000 kilometres of coastline, and there's not that many whale scientists. There's much more uh, members of the public, so we need your eyes, and we need you to keep your eye out for southern right whales during winter. And if you see any, uh, report it to the Department of Conservation. So there's a dock hot phone line, or you can look at their website and report the sightings. Okay, so all those eyes out there, if you see a southern right whale, don't assume somebody else has reported it. Send in your sighting. Yeah, we're going to be releasing some information about how to recognise southern right whales and differentiate them from humpbacks and other animals working with live ocean. How do you tell if a whale is a southern right whale? I think they've got lots of lumpy bits on them. They're really big. I like to think of them as kind of the 
goofy, gentle giants of the, the whale world. So they are up to 18 metres and 80 tonnes. So they're very, very big animals. They're, they're not built for speed. They're more like the sumo wrestlers of the, the whale world. So they're incredible, actually pretty agile. They are black in colour most for the most part, and they have the, the lumpy bits on their heads are white. They're called colossities. They're actually roughened patches of skin uh, that have little white lice on them. And they don't have dorsal fins, so their back is just smooth. They might have white blazers um, on their back. And their tails, so rather than being like a scalloped shape, like a humpback whale tail, it's quite uh, smooth edges and more triangular. And they do actually like to sail. So they will put their tail up in the water and, and the wind will push them along. I've never heard of that. That sounds lovely. <laughs> so while you're hoping that there are lots of eyes around the New Zealand coast looking for whales, you're going to be down on the Auckland Islands looking for whales down there, trying to work out what, how many mums there are, how many calves there are. We're going to be using genetics to estimate uh, recovery, but while we're down there we're going to be using drones and flying them um, and, and kind of like a surveys, small surveys across the Port Ross area. There were some surveys done back in the 90s just by people counting the animals and in the 2000s uh, from a, a one-day uh, boat survey as well because we suspect that the population is growing and there's lots more cow-calf pairs down there. Thanks, Emma. Emma Carroll is a Rutherford Discovery Fellow at the University of Auckland. And you can report your sightings of southern right whales at doc.govt.nz or ring 0800 DOC HOT. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. Now, take some old weather records, add citizen scientists... Mix in machine learning from Microsoft's AI for Earth project, and what you end up with is something that might help predict future weather patterns. I'm off to Niwa to find out more from climate scientist Andrew Laurie. So, Drew, you are rifling through a venerable box of treasures, sure. faded paper, which are registers of rainfall in 1944. Yeah, this is Tongan rainfall during the war. And you can see that. Yeah, they, they were quite dutiful in doing the rain and the obs every day, no matter what was going on. We get that a lot from manual observers. They'll just carry on, no matter what's happening. So have you got boxes and boxes of these weather reports? There are troves, you know, treasure troves of stuff like this down at Newa Wellington. And these ones in particular, this is a bit of a mixed bag. But we have boxes just like this that contain our primary climate observing stations and some of our longest term stations. Some go back to 1850s, early 1850s. 1850s we started recording with it and we've kept the records. Yeah, we have the original records. So basically the barracks at Albert Park from the, the Royal Engineers, 1852. Of course, that got decommissioned in the late 1990s. But it went for a very, very long time. And um, those were the first truly official government regimented observations. Of course, we've got the earlier ones from Reverend Richard Davis that we found in the Auckland Library. Tell me about those. Sure, Reverend Richard Davis. He was a missionary for the Church Mission Society based in the far north, the Waimate North in Kaikoi. And uh, we found a diary, meteorological diary, that was in um, the special collections in Auckland City Library. 
and digitized that record, analyzed it, and it dates back to 1839. So it's our oldest set of meteorological observations. And Kate DeCourcy, who's, I think, retired now, she helped me out. She was at the library at the time. And Kirsty Webb nominated that collection for UNESCO Memory of the World Status, and it was, I guess, inducted very recently. We found some really amazing things in it, um, quite unusual things, snowfall in the far north, you know, snow persisting for a couple of days on the ground. And, of course, we're, we're, we're wanting to understand those types of extremes and how and why they happen for New Zealand and whether or not that's going to be something we see less of or is it something we're going to see more of with climate change. How many times have we had snow recorded in Northland? It's looking like it's somewhere on the average of like 60 to 80 years, a return event for, for some of these snowfall events. Um, certainly there was a decent one in, in 1939, so we're studying that one right now as part of a, an AI for Earth project that uh, Microsoft is supporting, which is helping to lend a hand in how we capture these old analog data and digitize them. Okay, so you've got boxes <laughs> boxes and boxes and boxes, miles. Well, these pieces of paper, and how do you go about digitizing them? So the first thing is that we need a digi- we need a digital surrogate of all these pages, which is taking a photograph of them. Basically. Exactly, taking a photograph in a regimented way, so that they're all done the same way. Some of these documents, for example, are written by some pretty famous scientists in New Zealand. I mean, if you look at some of the names on it, I recognize, you know, Cheeseman, who is a, you know, what ecologist, botanist um, type. He was taking the weather observations, you know. And if you think about me going into the archive and if I have to check a value on it to say, is this actually correct? Did we key it in correctly? I don't want to handle the original. We need to start handling digital copies. The other thing is that if anything, God forbid, were to happen to the building or the archive... Um, we've got this stuff stored for posterity in the cloud. Yeah, somewhere. because at the moment you have one copy. That's right. Well, there, there may be other copies, but from from our understanding, those are the original copies. So they have historic significance, and they have cultural and scientific significance. And and, and it's being a data steward is important. And we've got to we've got to now up our game in terms of capturing these the right way, and then keying it in. Um, this is this is light in terms of the observations on the sheet. It's got three columns with, with and it's very tidily written. It is, it is that one. Even I could translate that. That one. one's not bad, but let me find you a different one. <laughs> that may not be so nice. We're heading to Norfolk Island, ah. yeah. No, I mean, so <laughs> that one's actually pretty nice. But if you look at some of the, the, it's getting a bit more spidery though. Yeah, a bit more, a bit more. A really funny one was the earliest record from Campbell Island, which was done in the first decade of the 1900s. And my colleague, Matt McGlone, has is, is done a lot of work down there on paleoecology over the years, and he, he keyed that record himself and gave it back to us. And what was really interesting was seeing the handwriting, the person, the first month of the first year that they were based there. I mean, it was beautiful. This was one of the shepherds or something. It, yeah, it would have been somebody taking care of the station down there. And then, um, and then if you look at the last page in the last year, I mean, it was just frantic. <laughs> it just scrawled over the page, you know, the same person writing as well. So we've got registers, meteorological registers, that have a lot of columns across the page, and it's inconsistent with how neat the handwriting is. And normally what we would do is somebody would have to sit there and key it all in, and that's, that's a lot of cost and time and money. So have you been getting people to help you in this we have so we use um, citizen science to help us key it in and what we're able to do is we're able to take snippets of these forms put it up onto a website 
that describes what our mission is and why we want the data keyed. And people are incredibly helpful. They'll come along and they'll, they'll key um, bits and pieces as they can. Spend five minutes doing a keying. That's five minutes that we didn't have to spend doing it. But we do it repetitively. So we've got different operators who are keying the same thing multiple times over and over again. So, so you get five or ten people, whatever, doing the same page. Well, we ran an experiment to determine what the optimal number of people is. Which is? Which is eight. It looks to us like it's eight because it allows us to get a complete data set from whatever we put up and we're also able to understand how many of the entries what percentage might have what's called a type 1 error or a type 2 error so right now what's a really exciting thing at NEWA is that this has some traction in terms of bringing our historic data into the future by capturing it and preserving it for posterity so the the first effort you did with your citizen scientists you chose a particular week i think yeah so it was the snowfall event um the week it snowed everywhere in 1939 and we had a dusting of snow on mount eden the 30s were a very unusual decade in terms of variability climate variability was a bit weird and up until recently we i think we had one of the highest january temperatures until we got the marine heat wave of 2018 so yeah it's an unusual decade and that in particular was an unusual season because of the snowfall event that that happened about that time and another reason for wanting to focus on this this event was it's a very good example of testing our data capture using citizen science and the great thing about citizen science is that again we get back a hundred percent data set and we we have very high confidence that it's correct and what that means is that we can basically start using that correct data set and these images, these little snips of each of these numbers, to train computers how to do it. Aha, uh-huh, so that's the, the Microsoft AI connection. Correct. Yeah, so there's a couple of approaches that can be taken, and they have cognitive services that they use where they could take and upload these images, and they've got AI running in the background that can basically give us an answer of what it thinks these numbers are. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to get right. No one's really solved it yet in terms of tabulated scientific data. It's, it's hard. It's a lot harder than words. So how do they do that? Because they must have to tell the computer some rules about what makes a two look like a two compared to the five that's sitting next to. Yeah, that's right. So there are rules. It is a supervised machine learning exercise where you have exemplars. You have thousands of exemplars that are in in a library, and the image analysis that's done um, basically can see that this line going vertically down a cell, start and stop, is a one. And so it needs to be trained. What does a one look like? And, and if you think about some of the methods that are used that uses a global data set, what's called the MNIST data set, there are 65,000 examples across letters and numbers that exist. And, and so when you chop that down for individual letters and then individual numbers, it's actually not a lot of examples. Because you've got 26 letters and basically 10, and 10 numerals. 10, 10 numerals, that's right. And so then do you choose to analyze this by individual number or do you use um, both integers together as... It's ah, number so 21 is it a two and a one is or is it, or is it, it 21? Or 21? Really, the whole, the whole premise, though, behind it is that if we're going to do this type of machine learning exercise, doing citizen science data capture of meteorological data, in the first instance, we get the data and we can use it in the modeling that we do. 
and, and improving the records of our past and putting it together with other data. And then the serendipitous outcome is that we have a 100% complete data set that can be used for training machines how to transcribe scientific data that is in numeric format. So have you unleashed that AI yet on some novel numbers that you haven't trained it on? We're baby steps right now. So I think that we're the, we're the, the first couple of steps out of the blocks, so to speak, where we've got the approach... And it's what, a marathon? Yeah, it's going to be a marathon, all right. It might be a couple of marathons. But you still need someone to digitize these, so we need that's people. a professional job. Yeah, well, we need people to digitize them. So, I mean, digitize in terms of, like, taking um, and capturing them, catching the digital surrogate. I have somebody down in Wellington um, who is working to do that photography on some of our larger format material. We've also acquired a new scanner, um, a high-speed scanner that can do 130 of these pages uh, basically in a minute. And so if you feel this... The texture of this, it's basically thick. It's like oak tag paper. Mm. And so we, nice. want to, we want to also make sure that when we put this through one of those devices, it's not going to ruin it. So, you know, some of these are historic documents. I mean, war, Tonga. Yeah, absolutely. Some of them are not in great nick either, if you look at it. Um, some of them there's are some quite delicate sheets in yeah, there. Yeah, there are delicate sheets in here. These ones with torn edges? Yeah, 1928. Norfolk Island, 1928. So pretty pretty incredible um, we scan both sides because sometimes on the backs of these forms you have someone's life history <laughs> of being all alone out on a pacific island watching the weather for three years and lamenting oh what my family so look it's it's just taking care it's just ensuring that you pay this document respect because a lot of effort went into taking the observations and then carrying it forward in time and being a steward of these data and then being able to use these data for the betterment of humankind, that's the goal. Just going back to that week it snowed everywhere, did it snow right up to the tip of Northland? Well, I mean, yeah, 39 did. There's a eyewitness observation from Cape Reinga's lighthouse operator that um, snow was on the hills up there, whole country. It was a, basically a rolling buffet over a week of different towns getting um, getting hit by this system. July and August in general uh, appeared to be very snowy that year. There, were, there was quite a, a decent amount. Thanks, Drew. Andrew Laurie studies past climates, and he is at Niwa. And that's the show. If you'd like to listen again, there are slightly longer versions of tonight's interviews on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Don't forget you can also find RNZ Our Changing World as a podcast. Get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. And you can email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Many thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.